Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to This is Civity Radio Show. My name is Gina Valeria. And today I am here with Joan Blades from Living Room Conversations. Hello, Joan. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you on the air. So first, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what is Living Room Conversations? Living Room Conversations are a practice that allow people with differences to have thoughtful, caring conversations with each other. And it's a um, two friends with different viewpoints. Each invite two friends to have a structured conversation. Everyone's agreed to certain ground rules that are basically what we learned in kindergarten. Take turns, be respectful, be curious, take responsibility for your participation. And then it goes through a set of five rounds. The first couple rounds about just getting to know each other so that by the time you are having the conversation about the topic you've chosen together and you've you've got a sense that these people you're sitting with are people that you like too uh even if you might not have expected to and that you share share values so that you're listening to each other in a way that you don't listen to people unless you really care about them I I love that your example is the things we learned in kindergarten. What happens? Why do we forget the things we learned in kindergarten about how to treat each other? What what's going on? Like what happens between kindergarten and adulthood where we where we forget these really important lessons that that seem so critical that we're learning them in kindergarten and then all of a sudden we kind of disconnect. Oh, I have way too many answers <laughs> to that question. But um, you know, one of my good friends, John Gable, uh, started an organization called All Sides that gives news from left, right, and center side by side on the very same topic Ooh. Uh, so that you can look at how differently we're being exposed to news. You know, you look at it and you're, oh, well, I wonder I'm living in a totally different narrative than my conservative neighbor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because more and more the uh, media is selected to follow the preferences of the people watching it. So we're living in increasingly closed systems where our truth isn't even the same truth, which is very, very dangerous for democracy, which is one of the reasons we um, started Living Room Conversations, is the media is not helping us have a shared narrative, we need to basically take the power back and create the shared narrative together so that we start creating understanding. We also know, you know, when you look at online exchanges, it's often rude and hostile in a way that we never do in person. Yeah, absolutely. And part of it is the anonymity, but but increasingly, it feels as if people don't even feel the need to be anonymous anymore, that they feel that they can just 
say these horrible things, uh, well, what I find horrible, and 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 that it's increasingly okay, uh, and that that shocks me. Yeah, and we're seeing that modeled in the the media is modeling that, and leaders, I hate to say it, are even modeling that. Mm-hmm. Exa- so we're we're reducing our barriers to incivility. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And and uh, I, I want to jump in. I really want to get into what's going on there. I want to jump back a little bit to something you said about um, about closed systems. There was an interesting article from The Atlantic, and uh, it was a theory about why this may be. And uh, there's the whole the whole structure we have now I, I called you know, neoliberalism, but the idea that everything is a market and everything has market value and that choice should, you know, freedom and democracy should be based on choice. And so uh, we've seen it kind of take over our healthcare system. It's been kind of taking over the education system. But it's also this author, this this journalist posits, it's also taking over our journalism. And now we are shopping for our journalism rather than just getting the news that's there. And that when people start shopping for their journalism, they're only looking for stuff that they they want to hear. And therefore, when a story comes out that's just a story we all need to hear, but it doesn't fit their narrative, then there's this backlash. Well, you're a liberal media or you're a conservative, whatever you are, and 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 you must be lying. And and so all of a sudden we're in this – this is the theory, and I'm curious to know what you think of it. But all of a sudden we're in this mindset where we're not just taking in the news that's there, but we are actively fighting against the news we don't like. And that's confirmation bias, which is, mm-hmm. you know, scientifically proven. Moreover, there's, uh, it's not only the news we choose, it's news that we get and we don't think we've chosen it because we know that Google will send you the news that it thinks you want. Uh, Eli Pariser wrote The Filter Bubble a number of years ago where he points out that if he and his conservative friend were to Google Iraq, they'd get completely different articles about Iraq. Yeah, and so some algorithm that was supposed to be, well, I, I'm not sure I ever would have supported it, but it's supposed to be helpful, is actually exacerbating this problem. Yes. Yes. And and so, you know, we live in this, uh, you know, it's coming at us through our social media, which is set up to do this for us. It's coming at us through our uh, cable news, which I actually call cable talk shows. And and it's coming at us, you know, in the fact that we are now self-selecting, you know, what we want to hear. And so, you know, in this climate... You know, I, my big question for you is why do you think, why why in the world is there a need for something like living room conversations? But clearly, we've put ourselves in this position where we are not talking to each other. And as you said, this could be uh, this could be a real problem for democracy. So, so you know, t- tell me a little bit about how living room conversations breaks through it. I mean, you talked about the setup. You bring people in that you disagree with. How do you, how do you handle these conversations? How do you bring people in and guide them through this process in a way that helps connect? Well, I think the important thing to recognize is it's the process itself that brings people in because it's just two friends. So you already know this one friend. And you each invite two friends that you know have will agree to the ground rules mm-hmm. and abide by it. And then it's a discovery. Um, the living room conversation I had that really got the most press was uh, a friend of mine in introduced me to Mark Meckler, who's co-founder of Tea Party Patriots. And being a co-founder of Move On, he thought that was somehow appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I talked to Mark on the phone a number of times, and he seemed like a nice guy, and I started to get to know him some, though we have wildly different views on many things. (laughs) No, really? (laughs) But we also agree that, you know, we want citizens to be engaged. We want uh, our democracy to be healthy. We have a lot in common, too. And we decided to co-host a living room conversation at my house in Berkeley. And he came uh, to my house with a couple of friends. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of my friends for a conversation about crony capitalism. And it was just fabulous. Yeah? Uh, And the reason this was a high profile, you know, we talked ahead of time, okay, well, yeah, maybe we should invite one press person. We invited one press person from the San Francisco Chronicle. Mm -hmm. And I, and Mark knew him and trusted him, so I was like, good, fine, and greeted him, said, good to meet you, have some cookies, and we're going to ignore you completely now, which <laughs> we did, <laughs> because the conversation was fascinating. I had not sat down with Mark before or his friends, and he'd brought some friends with very different backgrounds from within the Tea Party to really understand what their concerns are, what their hopes are. And this conversation about crony capitalism led us to all understand that we're actually in this deep agreement on some things, that criminal justice reform, I've been working on it ever since, because in that conversation I found out that we all agreed there are way too many people in prison. Mm -hmm. The war on drugs has not been a success. There are evidence-based practices that we can be using and we aren't using in terms of dealing with all sorts of issues in the criminal justice system. We all agree, and yet these things have been stuck for decades. Now, the exciting part about this, <laughs> because <laughs> I think it's important to tell some success stories, sure. and we don't have enough of them, is that living room conversations um, led to really wonderful article on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle, but also led to Mark and I working together on criminal justice issues to some extent, being on stage, being, you know, videotaped and having that shared. It led to me doing an op-ed with Grover Norquist and Matt Kebbe. And in fact, we have a different space now in criminal the world of criminal justice reform. Uh, you know, also, I helped with a gathering in Washington, D.C. a year ago in October that was the seed for the Coalition for Public Safety. Wow. And that coalition is funded by the Koch brothers, MacArthur Foundation, Ford, and Arnold, which is awesome. I mean, that's just, and we're talking about that coalition is really big names on the right and the left saying, Yes, there are things we can do together That's to make t- our system work better in the criminal justice area. Absolutely. And I think so many people get, this is a, an incredible story and an unexpected story. And I'm still not quite believing it, though I know it's true. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it, 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 you know, I'm thinking of my own response to it. And I'm thinking, God, it's just, I'm a super optimistic person. And yet, even I believe that, you know, everything is skewed by financial, you know, incentives and that it's it's impossible to get two people from the opposite side to talk to each other and 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 I and, and it just feels sometimes so discouraging that you know you know my own parents are very conservative and I'm 
middle of the road, slightly liberal. And, you know, there are things we won't talk about, even though we're all reasonable people and they're incredible. You know, it's like we just don't know how to talk about these things. And the, if you and and the head of the Tea Party can sit down and find common ground and actually agree to work towards something without falling into these, you know, these sort of scripted, vitriolic, you know, entrenched sides, then then anybody can do it. But I but I think people are losing hope. Yeah, and that's what we can't do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, and that's why I tell a little story about Mark and I. And I think the thing that works most about Mark and I is when we're up on stage together, it shows we really like each other. Mm-hmm. And yes, we disagree deeply about some things, uh, but we can also work together on the things we agree on. One of the interesting things I realized after that uh, very successful crony capitalism conversation, and that's, you know, crony capitalism, the prison industrial complex is just uh, something that is going to take a lot of work. You know, now we see a political opening uh, where red states and blue states are bragging about reducing their prison populations and Republican and Democratic candidates are talking about reducing prison populations and using, you know, more evidence-based measures to work on them. That's a wonderful change, but we actually need to step into that opportunity in a really thoughtful way and start finding what levers are going to create change because... It's only step one. <laughs> right. And not everything will work. And and I think also, you know, you just used the word thoughtful. And yes, thoughtful is the key because not everything will work. And sometimes when things fail, well, we knew it wouldn't work. Let's, okay, we're done. You know, and, and no, 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 wait, stick around, stay at the table because we have like these other things to do. Um, and, 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 you know, something's going to work. Of course, we need to experiment. Of course, we need to try. And of course, we need to be thoughtful about the reforms. And, and I, you know... I, I just hope that people are willing to see that through because especially in the heightened era that we seem to be in right now, it's just so easy to throw up your hands, especially at the slightest, at the slightest misstep. Well, that's why we need to be in, you know, we need to be in right relationship. And what living room conversations are more than anything else is the ability to start having relationships with people that we've been cut off from so that we can not only come to some agreements, but be in a good enough relationship that we can keep working on making things better. Because you don't figure out any complex problem in one fell swoop. Right. It's got to be an ongoing determination to fix, you know, if it's poverty, if it's climate change, if it's the criminal justice system. It's a complex, deep dive. Absolutely. You know, we're going to take a quick break. I'm here with Joan Blades of Living Room Conversations. This is Gina Valeria, and you're listening to This is Civity Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Richard Roundtree, and I'm a breast cancer survivor. Yes, you heard me right. Men get breast cancer too, and when we do, it can be very hard for us to talk about it and get support because nobody expects a man to have breast cancer. But I know one place to get reliable timely information about breast cancer. Breastcancer.org is a special place on the internet that translates all those big medical words your doctor uses 
into plain English. It helps you understand what kind of cancer you have and what treatments are out there. It helps you get your head together and make a list of questions for your next doctor's visit. And it gives you all kinds of other good information to guide you and your family through this. Breastcancer.org, the first place to go the minute you find out you have breast cancer. The silver and black. The California Golden Bears. Stanford. 49ers. Weekly picks. Fantasy. Join Steve. Malika. Jules. Anything Bay Area football and more, we got you. Tune in to Wednesday Night Lights, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. On kffsmedia.net slash radio. It's nighttime somewhere. Welcome back to This is Civity Radio Show. This is Gina Valeria. I am here with Joan Blades of Living Room Conversations, an organization working to bring people together through dialogue. Uh, so, Joan, we were talking uh, in the last segment about uh, your incredible relationship with the Tea Party Patriots founder and the work you're doing on um prison reform and criminal justice. And I want to talk a little bit about um, Living Room Conversations itself uh, to try to get at sort of how how you sit down with someone that you either don't agree with, that you may hate, or that you're afraid of or uncomfortable with. You know, how do you sit down with that person um, or that group of people? And 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 what are the mechanics of getting people to start to actually listen to each other? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah. Happy to. Um, generally speaking, I think hate is too powerful. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm going to sit down with someone I hate. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask a friend to come sit down with someone they hate either. <laughs> so there has to be a willingness off the start to actually sit down with someone. Yeah, there's a, I know when I invite someone to be a co-host that they are open to the idea of conversation with people with different views, and they find it at least interesting, possibly a little bit scary, Mm -hmm. but interesting and important. And sometimes people do it because they are curious about really breaking down their own stereotypes and finding that there there are things that they can enjoy and appreciate about people that they've kind of put in boxes. But more often I think people do it because there's an issue that they care about passionately and they don't understand what the obstacles are. I mean, I got into conversations with people that are different first and foremost because I didn't understand why there was a obstacle to working on climate change. And so back in 2004, I started to work with a group called Reuniting America. And it gave me an opportunity to sit down with leaders on the right. I got to ask Roberta Combs, the president of the Christian Coalition, tell me more. (laughs) And what I heard from her at that time was, you know, it's not one of our focuses. And Ultimately, because we had a friendship and liked each other, yeah, we kind of learned more. And Michelle Combs, who is the communications director for the Christian Coalition, ultimately ended up taking Al Gore's class. And she is um, 
also a founder of Young Conservatives for, okay, Energy Solutions, I believe is the name of the organization, because it became something she herself was genuinely concerned about. Mm -hmm. But that was at a time when the barriers between left and right were less solidified. I got to a point about five or six years ago when I realized that I could not still have that same conversation. Right. And what did that do when you found out that this conversation was no longer possible with a lot of people? Or how did that make you feel or what what went through your mind? Um, Deep concern. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what caused me to, I'd been thinking, you know, when we sit down with each other, when we really touch each other's humanity, we find we like each other. Most people across the political spectrum are good people. They're smart. They're caring. And putting them in some kind of they don't care or they're mean or they're selfish or whatever your stereotype box is actually not good for any of us. Right. You and know, when I, we sit down, that just it just goes away. When you're in your home or you're in someone else's home and you're, you're being hosted and they're your friends or your friends' friends, you treat people with respect mm-hmm. and you find you like them. And all of a sudden, all these other things become possible. You hear each other in a way that you simply cannot when you are you know, just seeing someone as a representative of that other group. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier, uh, and and I want to bring it up, our current political rhetoric and the current slate of presidential candidates. And, and I, I want to say particularly on the Republican side, uh, because there's been a lot more going on over there. But the... Um, the, the current spate of, pl- of political candidates, uh, it took the Republican slate a long time to stand up to some of the things Donald Trump was saying. And that concerned a lot of uh, Americans from the moderate to progressive side. Um, and now, of course, recently we have now we've had some fairly, fairly violent things happen. Uh, we had, of course, the San Bernardino shootings. Before that, we had the uh, Planned Parenthood shootings in Colorado, which isn't being talked about a whole lot because it doesn't quite fit the narrative, I would say. But um, but we have Donald Trump, the front runner in some of the early uh, primary states, saying he wants to uh, you know, have Muslims carry ID, uh, track them, not allow them into the country. Uh, and these are these are all things that, you know, the country has done before and then apologized for and been deeply embarrassed by. Um, and 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 yet he continues to spew these. There was a very interesting interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN uh, with Donald Trump. And Chris Cuomo was trying to, you know, Donald Trump said, hey, we should allow the Sir- the Christians in. And Cuomo said, but you're saying we shouldn't allow any Syrian refugees in. And Trump said, that's right, no Syrian refugees, but it's too hard for the Christians get- to get in and too easy for the Muslims to get in. It was this, it was this trying to play all sides of some messaging to some group of people. And, and instead of being helpful to bringing people together, of course, it was very divisive. And so when we have that political rhetoric and our potential leaders speaking in that way, you know, how does that play out with the public? And, and, and you know, how do we just average persons sitting here in our, in our communities deal with that and push back against that? It's really sad what's happening with leadership. And 
the dream with living room conversations and other groups that are trying to create a healthy dialogue and relationship is that we have a world in which respectful uh, discourse is the norm. And the kind of uh, divisive, um, you know, just mean-spirited <laughs> that we're be- seeing is not acceptable, that people will condemn it. We're not there right now, and that's, you know, that's one of the things. So worrisome, what can we do in our world? Well, you know, living room conversations are the tool I know best because, you know, that's the one I'm working on. But there are other wonderful things to do, too. But, you know, it's a website where everything one needs to be able to hold their own living room conversation is up. And you can go to the topics area. You can watch a little video about how to do it if you want, or you can just read, oh, you invite a friend, and here are the topic areas, and you print out the guidelines and the rounds of the conversations, and you just do it. Because I believe in the grassroots. I believe that regular citizens hold on to a lot more common sense than leaders sometimes do. And that good leaders desperately need citizens to provide the foundation for them to be inclusive themselves. Because we're finding now that leaders in D.C. that talk to the other side are demonized for it and sometimes lose their positions as a result of that. I want it to be the opposite of that, that when leaders work collaboratively, they get praised. And I now use the term collaborative rather than compromise because mm. compromise has... It's, been, a bad, it's a bad word now. It's become lose-lose uh, working with others rather than looking for win-win solutions. And there are... It is possible to do win-win solutions, and we need to remember that. And yeah. when we care about each other, then we really do look for it. Absolutely. Um, it comes from, I have, I, I'm, uh, thank God, lucky enough to have friends from all political stripes. And I've got an adorable childhood friend who lives in Waco, Texas. And, and she's Republican and, and I'm, you know, not. And she, and we, I was visiting her recently and, and she said, look, she said, you know, I'm just going to vote for whoever the Republican is, but I'm not paying attention. I'm too busy with the kids. She's like, Gina, can you just tell me about all the candidates. But she knows that even though we don't have the same political beliefs, that I'm going to be fair about the candidates when I tell her about them. You know, and so we have this, this very deep trust and this very deep love for each other to where, like, I'm really, I really wish you wouldn't vote for this candidate, but, you know, here, here's, here's what I know. And, 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 and I, I try to cultivate those relationships, and I, I, I wish more people would. Um, but when we're faced with this discourse and, as you say, in Washington, D.C., this, um, this sort of norm, of, look, if you're going to talk to the other side, you're cut off. We're not going to deal with you. Uh, recently, John Stewart of uh, former Daily Show fame, he's he's taken up the car. He has uh, years ago took up the cause of the 9-11 first responders and mm-hmm. got, as you are probably well aware, got them, got their health care funded for five years. Recently, it was supposed to be uh, passed or, you know, renewed and it was taken out at the last minute over some political spat. So he went back on the Daily Show this week to try to raise awareness of it and in doing so, he brought on 
well, he had a panel five years ago, and only one person from that panel is still uh, still able to uh, travel. The other two are very sick, and one has passed away. And uh, and this person who came said, you know, we went to D.C. to talk to um, I, I I don't want to misspeak. There's there's a specific. Uh, I think it was Mitch McConnell, but went to speak to this person and was told, well, you're very lucky that you get to talk to uh, a, a, a congressperson. You're just very lucky. And it's like, that, that's not the point. I'm not very lucky at all. I'm trying to get something done. And so this sort of insular disconnect there, um, it used to be that I don't think that that spread to the rest of the country. And I wonder if now people are starting to sort of take on the the insular nature of what's going on in D.C. and in, in their own lives and in their own communities. Do you, do you have any comment about that? Um, I'm afraid that is happening. I, I'm afraid that the way the media is, you know, the media likes the fight. And not having news that's there to educate but rather to entertain mm-hmm. has been... Terribly damaging, I believe. Yeah. You know, we just, we're not calling to our higher, (laughs) our higher nature. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and we're not being asked to. We're not being asked to call to our higher nature. We're not being, uh, we're, not, we're not hearing messaging, uh, you know, I, I go back to John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We're not, we're not hearing things like that anymore. We're not being asked to work together. You know, we're not being asked to solve problems. We're not being asked to help. And I think citizens have forgotten their power. And I think citizens have forgotten. And in some cases, it's been minimized through gerrymandering, et cetera. But I think citizens have forgotten the power that they can wield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sadly believe that that is correct all too often. Yeah. So, you know, I also see, because I am part of Mom Rising and Move On, mm-hmm. or Happen, I've seen citizens do amazing, wonderful things. And that is clearly the reason I think living room conversations have such huge potential, because if if it actually meets a need, that the citizens decide they have, mm-hmm. then it's structured so that as many as want to do it can. How much do you think semantics play a role in whether or not people will listen to each other, uh, using the right word versus the wrong word, or actually trying to speak the language of per- someone on the other side of the, of the divide? I think it has a whole lot to do with things. Um, Way back when, I was a divorce mediator, so, you know, trying to get people to work together. You know, kids were being destroyed because of adversarial divorces. Mm -hmm. And parents need to have an ongoing relationship to be able to take care of their kids. Um, And so mediation is just essential there, and I've come to conclude that it's essential that we have a relationship in order to have a healthy democracy and solve the kind of problems we need to solve. Absolutely. I think a lot of the word, for some reason, it comes up a lot in my life, the word privilege. Um, and at Civity, this word is, is discussed uh, a, a little bit to talk about what it really means and how to describe it. <clears throat> But this is a word that can turn people off. You know, there are people who feel less privileged, um, say the black community, and <clears throat> try to t- try to try to talk and, and express their views. And people on the other side, privileged, I'm not privileged, 
and then boom, turn off. We don't hear anything else each other says because this word is so, is so loaded for some reason, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. And, 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 and that's such a tragedy that, that to me, semantically, that can just turn people off. And, and so part of it is, well, let's figure out how to speak to the person uh, in their language, but I've also had experiences where people on one side say, look, I don't want to speak their language. If they're not going to hear me, then forget them. And it's like, okay, well, that's not helpful at all. Um, do you, does this come up in your conversations where people just dig in and, uh, and say, look, I'm trying to explain myself. If you don't hear me, then I'm frustrated with you and, and that's it? It hasn't come up in any living room conversation I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, you know, the divorce story is like, do you call someone the mother of your child or my ex-wife? Brings up a whole different <laughs> set of yes. responses. And the same is true in you know the political realm. One of my partners is putting together a red-blue dictionary so that we can better understand what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, I love that. When, that. when that's ready, please tell us about it at Civity. I think we will definitely want to talk about that. Well, it's, it's due out in January, so. Oh, how fun. This is get wonderful. Get ready. <laughs> I'm going to get it from my parents. I'm very excited. <laughs> um, so so um, I'm so sorry. I, I want to take one more quick break, and then when we come back, I would love to touch on um, sort of the recent shootings and the discourse surrounding those, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about how maybe uh, the work you're doing can help students uh, navigate college campuses and, 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 and experiences they have, if that's something that uh, you're willing to talk about. Uh, that sounds great, though I may not know anything about it. No worries. I think, I think we'll find something. Um, th- you're listening to This is Civity Radio Show. I'm Gina Valeria here with Joan Blades of Living Room Conversations. We will be back in just a moment. When I was young, I was convicted of a gun crime and served 10 years in a federal prison. But that was nothing compared to the 120 months my brother had to walk home alone. Hey, little man, come here. What you got on your back? Or the 520 weeks of sleepless nights my mother faced. (laughs) Over 3,000 days my sister was left, afraid. That's over 80,000 hours I spent wishing I could turn back the clock. And in the end, I spent over 5 million minutes waiting to get out so I could be there for my family. When's daddy coming home? All the while... My family counted the 315,360,000 seconds until they knew I was back home. When you go to jail for a gun crime, your family serves a sentence with you. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. Welcome back to This is Civity Radio. I am Gina Valeria, and I'm here with Joan Blades of Living Room Conversations, talking about uh, discourse with someone that you might be uncomfortable with or who's on the other side of the divide and how to make connections and start working together to find solutions uh, in your communities and elsewhere. Uh, so, Joan, we've, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, and of course everybody knows we've had these two major shootings, one uh, in San Bernardino and, and another one in Colorado. And of course, there have been, uh, you know, myriad incidents that we may not have heard as much about. Uh, And these and also what happened recently in Paris and elsewhere in the world have got people 
at least in the United States, pretty nervous about uh, the state of terrorism in this country. And there's been a lot of discourse and dialogue in the media uh, surrounding this. And and so I wanted to talk a little bit about how that sort of discourse uh, can turn or form opinion uh, and and how something like living room conversations or other things like it can help create sort of a different discourse. Okay. So, so tell me a little bit about... Um, well, first of all, uh, the discourse we're hearing from the media and, and what that might be doing to people. Um, the reality is we've talked about how different the media is depending on which media you choose. Sure. And I don't feel like I have expertise on that because I, I've come to just minimize my media. (laughs) (laughs) I like, uh, I do like all sides because when I look at all sides, I do see the left, right, and center. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I'm reminded that it's the eye of the beholder Mm -hmm. is crucial in the way we see the world. Um, In the area of guns, the, we put together a conversation called Guns and Responsibility. Because Living Room Conversations is a, uh, a group of partners, really, at this point. And we have partners with uh, quite a bit of diversity of views. That seems to be a frame that allows people with different viewpoints about guns to talk about the topic in a way that's productive. And the gun topic is one that is very cultural. And I think you have to start with just building some trust and understanding. Mm -hmm. And I actually had the guns and responsibility conversation just this week. (laughs) Because with my um, partners, because we... We said, you know, we should have a living room conversation. <laughs> we hadn't. We're dispersed around the country. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating because, you know, hearing these people who I just really adore <laughs> have <laughs> some viewpoints that I find just very different. I live in Berkeley. <laughs> and it's like, but we what it allowed us to do was to understand each other. Mm-hmm. It, you know, something like guns, you're not going to come to the solution in one conversation, but you need it, you know, you deepen the relationship, you develop some better understanding. And then I think we have to, in some cases, have faith that that better understanding and caring about each other will open up possibilities for creating better solutions. And that's really the key. When we're not talking or when we're when we're isolating ourselves, all we can think all kinds of things about people. And, and I think in the gun conversation, it, it re, really at the end of the day, I think a lot of people would agree on some of the solutions that need to happen. But the rhetoric that the rhetoric that has taken over 
you know, the, the mass discourse is, is pushing things to polarization. And, and I think that's true in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, how much when you, uh, I, I know that living room conversations also delves into constitutional issues. So I imagine the Second Amendment is one that you, you might be focusing on. Um, has this come up as far as the gun conversation and how people view the Second Amendment and, and, and finding common ground there? You know, we haven't been able to go deep there. Living room conversations is still um, in an early stage in that, you know, we have limited resources. Mm -hmm. So I know there have been conversations in East Africa, but you can't really track them unless you have some resources. (laughs) True. (laughs) So I can only tell you about the conversations I've had and we've... Someone on the team has been able to track. That's wonderful. Um, so um, have you found, though, even though it, it, people have very differing views on guns, have you found that there is some common ground when it comes to potential solutions in the conversations that you've had? We had um, one of our partners, Ralph Benko, has a suggestion for how to address the issue that had all of us going, yes, we would feel safer. And uh, I, it had to do with something that was totally Second Amendment respectful because he is a passionate believer in the Second Amendment. And, you know, I can't describe it in detail because uh, it's, it's a fairly sophisticated uh, proposal, sure, but it's about you know making sure that the uh, citizenry that wants to have guns can have them, but they have to be trained. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> that, that's uh, that is about having a citizen uh, militia that is enabled and trained, and yeah, and it's true. If people have gone through that check to be part of our citizen militia, I would feel more comfortable, which is really quite uh, quite an excellent idea. But yeah, and and the term well-regulated militia does exist in, in the Second Amendment. I, I mean, I don't know how people interpret that, um, but it, it seems that, you know, that might include training, and if people can get on board with that idea, then that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I, we're, we're coming to, to from San Francisco State University. This is a student-run radio station, KSFS Radio. And I think there are opportunities for something like living, living room conversations to help with any campus climate issues. And, and though, I, you know, though I can't think of anything specific at SF State right now that might need to be addressed, you know, I do know that there are, there are issues on campuses across the country where maybe um, – there, you know, there Israeli-Palestinian disagreements or uh, protests over student fees and, and, and being upset with the president or racial issues, as we've seen uh, at the University of Missouri and, 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 and other colleges. So I'm wondering, you know, how might something like living room conversations, you know, be able to connect in, in, on campuses to help people uh, connect with each other? Well, certainly the topics... Um allow you to connect on some of those issues specifically right now and others there's a generic living room conversation which you can adapt and there have been adaptations done for campuses and uh, and we are also available to help with doing that because we're really eager to help people have living room conversations 
more than that, I want to mention that there's another conversation that would be remarkably appropriate on campus. Last year in California, under 10% of 18 to 24-year-olds voted. And that has a real impact on politics because people running for office don't pay attention to the that voter group, yeah. and we need that. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, 18 to 24-year-olds don't think voting's worthwhile, and they are given no reason to think otherwise. Well, we had a living room conversation this year hosted by our, our youngest uh, living room conversation person with uh, voters and non-voters. So that's another kind of difference, and they had a great conversation about why they did and didn't vote. Oh, wow. The good story out of that is by the end of that conversation, um, there was interest in voting. Within a week, it had kind of fizzled. Oh, no. Well, but that's what you've got to expect. If you don't create the community to support engagement, Mm -hmm. you know, we... We're human beings. We revert back to where we've been. Um, So I'm not surprised at all, but I would love to see the youth become the most likely to vote in the country because that would change the way leaders talk (laughs) and where they put their attention. That's true. You know, that's something older demographics have figured out uh, as people get older. I mean, it's true that as people get older, they tend to vote more. But the the rate of young people voting has uh, has gone down, I believe. And and it, I, there, I, you know, I work with some incredible, amazing young people, and I'm so lucky and so, so excited to be able to work with them. But I know that everyone's trying to find, hey, you know, this could be a solution. You know, we could do this on social media, we could protest. And those are all good things. But it's that vote. It's that vote that can have such an amazing power if it was done, if it's done collectively. And that, that is something that I think is a very difficult message to get across. Well, this living room conversation had, and Serena wrote a beautiful blog about this. She even got a youth media award for it. Oh, wow. Um, they were in complete agreement that high school did not prepare them to be able to vote. They knew more about George Washington and the Great Gatsby than how one might you know, participate in the electoral process. And it was highly questionable whether voting is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So that's a cultural question it would be very timely for us to address. And I would love to dig deep into that. So. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm, I'm also getting a, a doctoral degree, and my focus is on media literacy, critical media literacy, and with regard to engaging and voting among young people. So I'm I think I might talk to you offline a bit as well. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's an incredible story. I really appreciate you sharing that and um, and discussing how your how your young student Serena um, experienced experienced this and discussed it. Um, you know, I just want to. Is there anything else you want people to know about living room conversations and and how they go about? Please tell us the website and and how people can go about uh, doing this if they want to do it. And I encourage everybody to give this a try because I think you can really make a difference in your community. Um, but but John, let me give you a chance to to say the important things you need to say to to help connect people with the resources. Thank you. It's livingroomconversations.org. Everything you need is up there to do your own living room conversation. One thing people sometimes have believe they have a problem with is knowing someone that 
has a different viewpoint if they want to do a political difference. I want to say uh, I did it with <laughs> the, one of the founders of the Tea Party. So you probably have a friend that has someone that <laughs> has that difference if you don't have have it yourself. But more than that, I'm finding uh, people find that Facebook friends sometimes are the connection that allows it. So there's there's more opportunity than you think. And if it seems too intimidating to have uh, a tough conversation, I had a depolarizing politics conversation the other day. So you can try a conversation that is more aspirational than mm-hmm. focused on a problem mm-hmm. to get a sense for what the possibilities are. And since this is open source, we're hoping to learn from everybody that does conversations and make what we put up better. Um, And so we very much welcome more and more participation and are looking for ways to have our partners grow and our champions grow and give them ways to basically take over and run the show. <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful. And I'm wondering for young people, even though social media can be a very vitriolic place, I think with the right guidelines and the right uh, direction that it, the young people might find that they can use social media to form groups like this if they're, if they're willing to be respectful in the discussion, though it might not have the same impact as looking someone in the eye. You know, we've done uh, Google Hangout living room conversations, and they're very good too. Oh, we nice. tend to do Fewer people in a Google Hangout because being a real living room conversation with five rounds takes about two and a half hours oh, to wow. really listen to people. So there are abbreviated versions of the living room conversation that are great. But the reality is if you really want to go deep, it's really cool to have that two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, and to really be able to, to sit down and, and, and look at someone and connect in that way. Yeah. Well, Joan Blades, thank you so much. Uh, this has been uh, an amazing conversation with Joan Blades from Living Room Conversations, uh, and it's livingroomconversations.org, yes? Yes, it yes. Is. thank Li- you. <laughs> livingroomconversations.org. <laughs> this is Gina Valeria. You've been listening to This is Civity Radio Show. Have a great day. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.